Thank you for listening, but please be advised that I am not an expert on any of the topics I share on the show. I encourage you to always be skeptical about what you hear on a podcast and what you see and read on social media. Feel free to email livingthroughextinction at gmail.com if you have a correction for me. I also need to inform you that I swear, it's never a planned thing. I just get excited to the point where my language devolves a bit at times. So listener discretion is advised. Good day, everybody. I'm Ruby, and this is episode 33 of Living Through Extinction, a short, to-the-point podcast that looks at what is working and what may not be working when it comes to humanity's continued existence and how our everyday actions may be leading our grandchildren and great-grandchildren to a bleaker future, but also at the progress being made in mitigating these issues and the hope that remains if we as a people of this planet can someday come together. There is a main research topic which falls under this canopy on each episode. Preceding this topic are brief segments which include skepticism, environment, wild and plant life, and archaeology. These are contingent on something coming to mind or a news story catching my eye that falls under their headings, so every segment is not necessarily on every episode. Following the main research topic, however, to finish off each show, there is always a segment of joy, hope, happiness, positivity, that kind of thing. It may be a serious topic like a scientific advance that may give hope for conquering a deadly disease, or it may be a frivolous topic like a personal hobby or collection that makes me happy. Or it may just be a short, heartwarming, true story I came across and want to share. The key for this segment is to end things on a somewhat positive note. If you have joined me before, thank you for returning. And if you are new to the podcast, welcome. I hope you find it both fun and informative. I intended to talk about my next set of three logical fallacies for the skeptical segment on this episode. But something on some show pissed me off, so I'm going to rant about that instead. I had this show about certain places on in the background as I was getting ready this morning. Going to keep this as vague as possible, so if you feel like you absolutely have to know exactly where I saw it, you'll have to email me. Suddenly, some random guy is making conspiracy theory-laden comments about wind turbines. He starts off with a couple of rare incidents that I believe were actually legit, but I'm not going to state them here because I haven't done that kind of looking into them to be sure. There are some things I do know, however, and listening to him babble on pulling shit out of his ass was so fucking frustrating. He made an ignorant comment about the fact that we have started putting wind turbines in the ocean going on about what an enormous feat it must be and how huge they have to be and blah 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 oh my gosh he goes on to say that with being that difficult why would they put them in the ocean if they weren't harmful to people when on land he ends his garbage with makes you think huh i'm sorry but fuck this guy instead of putting it out on television as a possible conspiracy theory for billions to see why don't you fucking look into ocean turbines and find out why they are becoming the norm? Ignorance is understandable, but with Google at your fingertips, it is absolutely unacceptable that someone would just put this out there with a makes you think without ever checking into it at all. 
I can tell you why turbines are being put into oceans and why I hope to see it circle every continent in the world someday. And it has nothing to do with possible harm to people. For those who are not aware, and those who may not have heard Living Through Extinction episode 28, where the main research topic was wind turbines, here are a few facts about what are actually called offshore wind turbines, one of the three types I discussed on the show. There are not many of these now, but they have shown themselves to be the most efficient. They have almost zero downtime. There is nothing to block the wind, and the wind is almost always blowing in these locations. Being in the ocean makes it possible to make them larger, and size counts when it comes to wind turbines. For wind power, the bigger the better. And if the shorelines around the U.S. were to eventually be used to their maximum potential, offshore wind turbines could generate nearly double the energy than what the nation is currently using. That's why they have started putting wind turbines in the ocean, and I, for one, hope the trend continues. I don't care what you're watching or listening to, including this show. If someone says, makes you think, huh? Chances are the answer is actually out there if someone cares to look and not just ponder possible conspiracy theories. Be skeptical, damn it! This story is so cool. I'm just going to start with what a clickbaity headline would look like. Imagine if you could have your wood furniture grown to order. Hey, I would like a set of chairs grown in this design using this wood, please. Sounds kind of out there, but with the speed of advancements these days, I can definitely see this in my great-great-grandchildren's future. We've all heard about lab-grown meat, right? But I just recently learned about the possible future of lab-grown plant tissues, and they work in a similar way. Tissue is harvested and set to grow on a type of scaffolding made from a gel to get a specific shape. This is something that may someday make it less necessary to cut down trees for the purpose of furniture and other wooden items. The paper has been published in the Journal of Cleaner Production. It's in super early stages right now, but every step brings us closer. Researchers have learned that plant cells are similar to stem cells. They have the ability to become different things depending on how they are activated. There has been success in coaxing these cells to grow rigid wood-like structures by controlling their production of lignin, which is an organic polymer that makes wood hard. On top of this, they are growing these structures indoors without access to sunlight or soil. Now that they have proven that plants can be used in a controlled production process, the next step will be scaling it up, figuring out how to take it all the way to the point of growing a single piece of furniture from just a few harvested cells. Then learning to speed it up would probably be the next goal, right? I can imagine how this may someday reduce our logging needs, and that would be an environmental step in the right direction. On the wildlife side of things, we hear talk all the time that climate change is harming the polar bears. But how exactly? And do you know how narwhals are also being affected? That one was a surprise for me. With the bears, it's the reduced ice that's causing the most harm. They require the ice in order to hunt seals with the most efficiency. A bear can conserve energy by standing still on solid ice and then use that energy to dive and chase when a seal comes along. With no ice to launch off of and the constant use of energy to keep afloat when in open water, bears are not as good at catching their prey. Because of this, they are traveling to areas with more ice in order to hunt. 
it becomes like one of those stupid looped cycles because they have to travel much more to obtain food, expending more energy, requiring more food, which they have to travel more for, expending more energy, requiring more food. Poor polar bears. With narwhals, it's a completely different issue and one completely new to me. Climate change has caused newly flowing and moving ice in their habitat locations. Narwhals memorize openings in the ice and will return to them for breath. It has apparently occurred where narwhal tries to surface, but the movement of the warming ice moved their known air holes. If they are not able to locate an opening quickly enough, they will drown. Alternately, when narwhals go into more open areas with less risk of being covered by ice, they fall heavily to predation. Killed in open waters and drowned in iced over waters. What's a poor narwhal to do? Here's an archaeology story that got me super excited. The first ever discovery of parts of a human brain turned to glass through natural occurrences have been studied. Mount Vesuvius erupted quite violently in 79 CE. I guess that would be AD to you old school folk. A man laying on a wooden bench was covered in a cloud of extremely hot ash at the time. I don't know the science behind how this happens, but somehow the flash heating and quick cooling turned his brain to glass. The process is called vitrification, and it is quite rare to find in nature. This is fucking amazing because brain tissue is soft, malleable, edible, it decomposes, it erodes. It's, it's a part of the anatomy that we don't expect to find when unearthing fossils and things like that. This glass form of preserved brain provides a very rare sample of one from 2,000 years ago. By scanning with electron microscopes, they were actually able to see tubular structures and cell bodies and observed signs of nerve cells with elaborate tendrils for sending and receiving messages. I can't imagine being able to look at a brain flash frozen in glass like that. Uh, flash frozen is probably a poor term. The word was vitrification, so vitrified in glass like that. It must be an amazing feeling for the researchers who get to study it. This discovery has been published in Plus One, which is a journal I'm not familiar with, so I can't give an overall opinion on it. A picture can be seen at sciencenews.org, so go take a look. A term I was unfamiliar with until very recently is seagrass meadows. As I learned more about them, their importance became very clear, so that's what I'm going to talk about today. Seagrass got its name from its grass-like blades, which point upward. They can set root either downward or to the side in shallow, still coastal areas, with their largest numbers being found in the tropics. Despite their name and location, they are not grass and they are not a seaweed. They are a rooted, vascular, sometimes flowering plant that makes seeds, pollinate through the movement of the water, and grow in muddy, rocky, or sandy sediments. There are 72 species of seagrass separated into four groups, of which only a few inhabit the cooler regions of the world. The only continent without seagrass is Antarctica. They thrive in salt or brackish water and soft substrates. Because they do require sunlight for photosynthesis, they are usually found just a few meters deep, but there have been locations where they have been found up to 70 meters deep. Seagrass has been used by people for more than 10,000 years for many purposes. 
It's filled mattresses, insulated houses, thatched roofs, and fertilized fields, but it's the natural purposes it serves that are most important today. Its presence can actually determine the quality of local coastal waters. The meadows provide a highly productive species-rich ecosystem, which includes endangered species in its midst. More than once I came across them being referred to as one of the most productive ecosystems in the world. And at ScienceDirect.com, I saw seagrass referred to as an ecosystem engineering species, which I thought sounded pretty cool. Seagrass meadows perform many natural functions, including recycling nutrients, stabilizing loose sedimentary areas, and providing shelter for many different organisms. They also absorb a large amount of CO2, making them important players in the fight against climate change. Seagrass even provides a service when they die or lose their leaves. The parts that wash up on the beach decay and feed even more organisms. There are many invertebrates that depend on them to the point where if they were to disappear, these creatures would as well. The Atlantic Bay Scallop, for example, it requires the seagrass meadows habitat for the development of its larval stage and its juveniles use it to protect themselves from predators. The bottom-dwelling webfoot octopus, the seabed-dwelling crabs, sea cucumbers and other filter feeders all make their homes in seagrass meadow ecosystems. Seagrass itself feeds sea urchins, sea turtles, manatees and more. The introduction of seagrass to a location will actually modify its environment, creating a unique biodiverse habitat. And guess what? Seagrass meadows can help reduce ocean acidification, something I talked about in more detail on episode 20. Believe it or not, it even plays an important part in our economy. Seagrass meadows provide a safe nursery ground for many commercial fish, helping to keep fishing industries afloat. Another useful thing about seagrass is its evolutional history. Sorry, evolutionary history. There are records to show that this plant went from an algae in the sea to being a land plant for some millennia and back to the sea again. The genome was sequenced in 2016 with hopes of someday understanding how it adapted back to the sea and how it may have evolved tolerance to salt. So this is a pretty cool plant. Unfortunately, 7% of the identified seagrass meadows around the world are being lost each year. And this rate is even higher in Chinese waters. 90% were lost in a 20-year period near a port in Shandong province. Threats to seagrass at this time come from both human and nature, though more harm actually comes from humans, of course. Natural harms come from grazing of wild animals and storms. Those are minimal compared to the harm from coastal pollution, global warming, sea level rise, clearing for beaches, trawl fishing, dredging for harbors and ports, aquaculture, and boats with their anchors and blades. The commercial collecting of shellfish and sandworms also does quite a bit of damage. Overall, seagrass meadows are a vital habitat for marine life and a useful carbon sink, yet there are no international protections for seagrass meadows at this time. Their importance is becoming more apparent, however, and they are being protected at the local and regional level in some places. China has recognized the massive reduction in their waters, and projects have begun to restore seagrass meadows through seeding and transplanting. Their long-term goal is to restore 200 square kilometers, which would be amazing. One of my favorite things I learned looking into seagrass meadows is about a really cool method being used to sow the seeds. It's called clam planting. Sticky rice is used to stick seeds to the sides of clams. How simple is that? Yet it works. 
When the clams are returned to the water, they eventually burrow back into the seabed, taking the seeds into the sediment with them. And it's actually proving to be highly effective, which is just too cool. I love this. And talk about almost completely natural. Seagrass isn't one of those words we hear every day. I personally had no idea about its existence until just a little while ago. It's hard to get people to come together to protect something they don't know about, so maybe tell a friend about seagrass meadows and help spread the word. For this episode's happy, I felt compelled to share a story I read at readersdigest.ca. This is about Stumpy the Amazing Life-Saving Dog. Stumpy would have been raised to be a guide dog, but he was born with one deformed leg, which apparently put him out of the running. I have issues with that, but whatever. They must have their reasoning, and it's all good in the end anyway. Stumpy, now nine years old, saves the lives of other dogs every day. He's probably even saved some guide dogs' lives. Stumpy donates his blood for emergency transfusions, and due to his negative blood type, can help any dog who needs it. So far, he has saved more than 100 canine lives since he began. Someone should write a children's book about Stumpy, overcoming difficulties to become something even more amazing than anyone ever thought he could be. Cheers to Stumpy! I love this dog so much. So ends another episode. Thank you for listening, and may your health and sanity be replenished daily. Thank you to Jason Martin for composing the intro-outro for the show, and thank you to Kathy Rayner and Paul Palmer for their musical contributions on the violin and guitar. I hope you will join me in two weeks for episode 34 of Living Through Extinction. If you hated the show, please turn off now. If you enjoyed what you just heard and would like to support the show, the best ways are to like, follow, rate, comment, and share. Social medias for Facebook, Instagram, and Pinterest are under Living Through Extinction. And for Twitter is under LTE Pod. There is also a Patreon under Living Through Extinction where you can get decals, masks, pins, all sorts of stickers, and help me plant trees. And the email for any comments, corrections, questions, or suggestions is livingthroughextinction at gmail.com. Touchdown from Nebraska to Texas, apocalyptic scenes as twisters tear.